everybody, my name is Kyle. I serve as the lead pastor here at Trinity. I'm so glad that you have made your way here today. Uh, we're trying to create a church where you can come and belong even before you believe. And so I hope you experience that today and you're encouraged uh, being here with us. I'm excited for you to hear from a good friend of mine, Justin, today. Uh, he was a ministry major at Mid-American Nazarene University, uh, a university just outside of Kansas City. He's now a part of Trinity and trying to figure out what ministry looks like for him and for his wife. I'm excited for you to actually hear from him for the next four weeks as we kick off the series on James. So if you would, welcome Justin. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Kyle pretty much took my whole introduction and gave it to you already. Um, but I grew up as a pastor's kid, and if there's two things I know about vacation, and I know this is kind of uh, way off topic, but you understand. Two things about vacation, being a PK. One, we always played mini golf, and the second was that every single time my dad was not in church, the technology messed up. Every single time, without fail, we would get a call at 8 in the morning saying, Pastor, Pastor, the projector's not working, or this and that. And I'll tell you what, it's, it's crazy because um, just how my life has been going the last few months um, as my wife and I are getting ready to have our first kid. It's been, yeah, yeah, we're excited. There's been a lot of, of changes going on, a lot of stuff going on, and so I um, have been planning ahead for these next four weeks. You know, three or four weeks ago I started, I started doing notes, all this stuff. Yesterday I get up um, and I go to open up my laptop and my password won't work. And all my notes for the next four weeks are totally lost. And so I said, all right, God, uh, we're, you know, you're in charge, let's do this. And I open up and the first verse I read in the book of James was, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. And I was like, all right, God, I see you. I get it. I get it. And uh, I texted Kyle about it, and he said, uh, he said, you know what? Sometimes the sermon illustrations that we get last minute are not the ones we really want. I said, that's so true. Uh, but would you guys pray with me before we get started? Um, God, we just come before you this morning. We're thankful um, that you've given us a place to meet and just learn more about you. Um, but as we talk about what it means to really struggle, um, to have things that come into our lives, and what that means to look look at the situations around us and actually have joy in those situations. God, I just pray that uh, you would open our hearts, you would open our minds. God, I pray that you would set me aside and that your word would speak for itself today, God. Um, in your name, amen. So like Kyle said, we're going to be moving through the book of James over the next four weeks, including today with me, but then um, some other people that attend here um, are going to be going over more of James. So we're going to be spending a lot of time in that book. So I kind of wanted to set the stage a little bit of who really wrote this book. And uh, the more I dove into that, the crazier it got to me, um, because obviously the guy's name is James, who wrote it. Um, but there's, there's more than one James in the New Testament. Um, and so, you know, there was the, a disciple named James or other apostles named James, you know, whatever. Um, but a lot of theologians look at the entirety of Scripture and how the history played out in the early church. And um, it's pretty widely accepted that this James is actually the biological brother of Jesus Christ. Which in and of itself, I think we don't tend to remember that Jesus had brothers and sisters, maybe, um, that he had a family. But what I think it does in this case is it gives a really unique perspective into Jesus. Because um, you think of you think of the disciples, you think of Paul, they didn't know Jesus from the day the day they were born, you know, James did. Um, and it actually talks about how this man, I mean, think about it. If you, you're, does anybody have siblings? I'm an older brother. Do we all have siblings, most of us? Can you imagine one day if your sibling all of a sudden claimed that he was the Messiah? Yeah. 
I mean, I, I wouldn't believe my brother. <laughs> if he stood up one day, he's like, Justin, you know, you know, your whole life you've been going to church. You know, you heard that, you know, we have this Jewish heritage. One day there's going to be a Messiah. He's going to deliver us from oppression. You know, he's going to save us all. That's me. That's me. I, I wouldn't believe him either. And James didn't, you know. He watched his brother, you know, have this following that grew around him. He probably saw it as a cult. And then he saw his brother hang on, being hung on a cross and crucified. And he didn't believe. I mean, can you imagine the pain and sorrow he must have gone through where his, his brother was dying in front of him for something that he thought was ridiculous. But then Jesus comes back from the dead and James is like, I completely missed out on all of this. And so what we see here is a man who was so ridiculously changed by his faith and who Jesus was that I think it paints a really unique picture. If the man that grew up and saw Jesus in diapers probably and saw his humanity as he again went from a two-year-old toddler, you know, maybe he saw when he's potty training, I don't know. But this man came to believe that Jesus was not only the Messiah, but he was God himself. Um, and so what we see in this book, and I love how writer put it, we see James writing in a sense, he, he doesn't really talk about Jesus that much. But he sounds more like Jesus than any of the other New Testament writers. And I think that's because of the intimate relationship he had with Jesus. They had the same passions, the same desires. And so James kind of tells it how he is. And I think that comes from his, his disbelief originally. And he got so rocked, his world got so rocked that he's very blunt. And I love it. I love it. Because I think a lot of times, um, maybe we sugarcoat stuff in our culture. You know, we need to hear the blunt truth. And just like I did. When I was going preparing this sermon, God very clearly told me to get out of the way, and so we're just gonna we're just gonna read through the scripture and we're just gonna dive into it together. What that means um, for in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our circumstances, to have joy. Um, so if you have a Bible, um, like I said, even my slides were lost, so I'm, I can read it to you. If you have a Bible, take it out. Um, but there won't be a PowerPoint today. Uh, we're just gonna go through James. We're gonna start right at the beginning, James one chapter chapter one verse one. So it says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. So this is, this is not really uh, a letter that was written to a specific church. It says to the 12, tri- the 12 tribes, so the people of Israel that had been scattered throughout the nations. You know, after Jesus, this whole thing with Jesus went down, you know, the Christians were popping up everywhere, and they were starting to be persecuted. And so what happened was they, they fled, they spread, and, uh, and they were popping new churches up everywhere. And so this was a letter that would have been written to all the churches in this time of turmoil, in this time of maybe a little bit of fear, um, for the persecution, um, this would have been sent around to all the churches in the area. Verse 2, it says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. You know what's crazy? This is kind of one of those passages when I read it. Um, I mean, there's stuff in the Bible that you're like, yeah, that's good, Jesus. I got, yeah, I can get behind that. And then there's stuff that you're like, I don't know, Jesus. Are you sure that's really what you want to say to me? You really want me to do that? How can I do that? 
You want me to have joy in the midst of these troubles. And guys, I'm, we all will come across these troubles. There's never going to be a life, a person that breathes, that's not going to come, some, come across some type of trial in their life. And that looks different, differently for everybody. It could be financial. It could be um, in your marriage. It could be uh, with your family. For some people, it might even be just getting out of bed in the morning, finding that motivation. And the longer that I am alive and the more relationships I build, the more I realize that people deal with that, stuff like that. And I, I think we tend, to, uh, we tend to always focus inward on our own troubles. <laughs> we, we look at our troubles and they're always mountains. And then we look at other people's troubles and they, they seem like anthills because we're so inwardly focused, because we're so dependent on our own ability to get through it. It seems so big, we complain. But I think of um, the way we even view our troubles, the way we look at how we start to perceive them has to change. If we want to be full of joy in the midst of all circumstances, we have to look and see where does it begin, these troubles. Are they, are they from God? Are they, are they from others? Or they just happen? Um, I think there's been something that's gone around in the world, um, and Christians have gotten a hold of it. Um, but I don't really think it's biblically based, and that's the saying, everything happens for a reason. I know I've said it tons of times in my life. I've said it so many times. Dealing with people who had lost loved ones, I didn't know what to say. I said it. Everything happens for a reason. Now, I think everything, everything has a cause. You know, there's always something that causes it to happen. But I think what becomes dangerous is if we believe that God has a purpose for every single action that ever happens. Or that God is doing this to you. Or God, that God has done this. Sometimes crap just happens. And so what is God's role in that? You know, he gave us free will from the very beginning. And in that free will, people make dumb decisions. We make dumb decisions. We put ourselves in situations. But what God promises to do is he never forsakes us in those situations. And so I think one of my favorite stories in the Bible is this man named Joseph. Um, he, he was a brat, let's just be honest. If we look at this story and how it starts, he, um, he had a bunch of older brothers. He was young, he was immature, and God gives him this vision. And, in, and the interpretation of this vision was that one day he would be greater than his brothers. And you're thinking, well, that's, that's kind of cool. I, you know, I like the underdog, whatever. But what he does is he goes to his brothers and he says, guys, I just want you to know, you know, God, God spoke to me and... Uh, I imagine him kind of getting this little attitude. He's like, just one day you guys are all going to bow. You're going to bow right at my feet, right here. So you might as well practice right now. That's, what I, that's kind of how I feel he did it. And uh, so if you know the story, his brothers threw him in a well. <laughs> they didn't like it. And they all wanted to leave him for dead except for one. And then they can, that one convinced the brothers not to leave him for dead, but to sell him as a slave and send him away. Talk about a trial, man. I mean, I think that came because of his stupid decision, because of his pride. And so he finds himself in a foreign land. He has no family. His father thinks he's dead. His, his, his uh, brothers never tell his father anything about it. And so what he does is he becomes a slave in Egypt, and he's sold to a man named Potiphar. And it says that he continued to grow, to mature, to uh, follow Christ. He did everything he could to be a good, well, not Christ. He didn't know Christ yet, but follow God. And he did everything he could to be a man of integrity. And he continued to grow in recognition with Potiphar. And one day, Potiphar's wife 
takes notice of him. She, she liked what she saw, and she tried to seduce him. And what he does is he runs, he flees. He runs away so quickly from that sin that he leaves his coat behind. And uh, in response to her shame or whatever she was going through, she actually tells Potiphar that, he tried, that Joseph had tried to rape her. And so he's thrown in jail. I mean, talk about bad circumstances. He did the right thing, and he's thrown in jail with no end in sight. So it says in the, in the jail cell, he, he continued to trust God. He continued to follow him, and he became recognized among the other, the other inmates and uh, became in charge of them. And then they started having dreams about their future, and uh, he interprets them with the help of God. And God helps him bring him to a point where they, he's introduced to uh, the leader of the entire country because of his faith in God and God's ability to grant him the ability to interpret dreams. And, and this, this leader says, I have this dream, this is what it's about. And, and uh, Joseph goes back and he says, well, you know, there's going to be a massive famine in the land. And this is going to happen. And there's going to be seven years of, of good times and there's going to be seven years where nothing's going to grow. And if we don't prepare now, everybody's going to die. And so this leader is so impressed by it and, and he has been so faithful to God that he's raised to the second command, second place command in all of Egypt from a slave you know, from thrown in a well to a slave and all this. I mean, this is, this is years and years and years and years and years of his life in trial, in a jail cell, and doing all this stuff, and never once did God forsake him. And the end of the story is his brothers come back to him and kneel at his feet. They have no idea it's him. Kneel at his feet and beg him because they are running out of food. They can't take care of their family and their land. And he is the one who is in charge of divvying up the resources to help people. They kneel at his feet, just like it said. And he, in the end, looks at me in the eye and says, whatever you intended for evil, God intended for good. And what that story says to me is that no matter what circumstance we are going through, that God is ultimately able to turn it for the good of those who love him. He doesn't leave us in the midst of those without help. And so I'm going to say one phrase, if you, if you remember nothing from today, nothing from the next four weeks, Remember this phrase, God is large and God is in charge. God is large and God is in charge. I had a professor in Mid-America who told me that. I was in my intro to preaching classes probably, oh, I don't know, four years ago now. And every time we would talk about something he, he, and we had some issue that came up or we were worried about something, he would always say that to me, God is large and God is in charge. And ever since, every, every time I want to just shrink back in the midst of a problem or adversity, I, I remember that phrase, God is large and God is in charge. Because he is. So what does it mean, you know, we know that God's going to be there, but what does it mean to really have joy in those situations? How do we do that? Well, the only, the only thing that I can think of in Scripture where it really talks about how joy comes about, or the really root of it, is when it talks about the fruits of the Spirit. You know, in Galatians 5, it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, da-da-da-da, whatever. But it's a fruit of the Spirit. And so we can't expect joy to come of our own works or our own ability. It's not something that is, um, is from us. It's something that's from God. And the only way that happens is if the Holy Spirit, we allow the Holy Spirit to dig roots down deep into our life to produce the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So if we want 
to be people of joy in these circumstances, we have to allow God to do it in us. I think a lot of times um, it talks about, um, you know, if you ask God, if you lack, if you lack wisdom and you ask God, he's going to give it to you. I think a lot of times um, we ask God to help us through our trials and we don't like what he says. We find ourselves in a situation where we don't know what to do and we ask God and his answer is not easy. It's not what we want. It's going to stretch us. And so when it talks about you know, these being, being divided, being of two minds, um, I think when we come to God, we, we need to understand that he doesn't erase these trials from our lives. He's not the one who's just going to snap his fingers and they're going to disappear. He's the kind of God who wants to carry us through them because his reasoning for all of this is to ultimately help us grow to become more like him. You know, in the Old Testament, it talks about um, a refining process in our lives. That's painful, yes, at times. It can be challenging, but it's, the ultimate goal is always for God's love and God's redemption to triumph in the end. And when you think about like a metal... Uh, when it's refining, when it's being refined. A lot of times there may be impurities when they dig it out of the ground. And the way you can get impurities out is you melt it down. Melt it down to its purest form, and then you can separate it. And that's what God does in the midst of these things, if we allow him to. He, he, he's, he's in the process, and he's in the business of redeeming. He's not in the process of, of just um, snapping his fingers and changing you into something else. He's in the business of helping you grow into who he wants you to be for his purpose. So God's large, and he's in charge. No matter what you're going through, you can, you can say, Justin, you don't understand how difficult this is, and I know, but God does. God always understands what you're going through. Jesus was nailed to a cross. He gets it. He gets the, the enormous weight of pain, emotional, physical. He gets it. And here's the thing. He promises he's always in charge. He's always large and in charge. He always wants to help you through the other side with joy. And you see, when we trust God before these things come up, when we have that understanding that God is large and in charge, things don't phase us the same. When that joy is built so deep down inside of you and these things come up, you already have a mindset of, okay, God, you got this. You got this. So it moves on to uh, verse 9, says this, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. You know, when I first read this, I almost skipped it. I was like, James, why, why did you bring this up all of a sudden? Like, I'm trying to make these points, I'm trying to go through this sermon, and then you just, like, kind of blindside me with this whole rich-poor thing. But I think what he's really saying is he's talking about this idea of false securities, things that we cling to that don't bring us any joy. I mean, an easy one to always talk about is, is, is money because it, it is a security that our society values. But Jesus is saying, you know, there's so much better or James is saying, I'm sorry, there's so much better than whatever you're clinging to now. See, when we cling to, I, I have this dog, his name is Smithers. I have two dogs, actually. And Smithers, is his personality is just like his name. Like, he's the goofiest thing ever. 
He is so clumsy. He runs into everybody. He tackles people. It's just whatever he does, you just have to laugh. And I, I was in the backyard. I was playing tug of war with my other dog. And Smithers just likes balls. Like he likes tennis balls. He likes um, Kong balls. Whatever he can, he can have. He'll run around with it. And he won't give it to you to play fetch. He'll just hold on to it. But he was, he was just minding his own business with a tennis ball, chewing it or whatever. And I started playing tug of war with our other dog. And he wanted to play tug of war. He wanted to come and join in with the fun, you know, the joy that we were having, whatever. And when he ran and tried to jump in and grab onto the rope, he clotheslined himself because he hadn't let go of the ball. So here he is, and he just keeps going. He keeps trying to grab the rope with a mouth that's already full with this tennis ball. And I think that's what we do when we have these false securities in our way. And I'm not trying to say that having money is a bad thing. I'm trying to say that often the good things in our life that we use for security get in the way of the best. I had a professor, he was a, he was a, a counseling professor, he said this once, good is often the worst enemy of the best. God wants the best for your life. And that's being rooted in him in the midst of these circumstances. When it talks about, um, I thought this was so cool, when it talks about um, the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. Um, in, this, in this land, um, there would have been, there were lots of pastures in Palestine. So there would have been a lot of beautiful wildflowers and, and lands full of just grass, wildflowers for, for miles and miles. But there was also this, this Syrian desert right on the other side. And they would have known, because it would happen regularly, if in, in one day, if, if a wind blew just the right direction, the scorching heat could come and kill the entire pasture in one day. I think what James is alluding to here is that our false securities can disappear like that. The only constant, the only constancy in our lives when we go through these tough times is God and relying on him because he's large and he's in charge. And I'm going to say that a hundred times today because this changed my life when I began to believe this, that he is large and he's in charge and there's nothing that's bigger than him. I remember when I was little, um, I don't know if, I don't know how many of you have seen Veggie Tales, one of, some of the original ones. Yeah. <laughs> I still know the song that goes, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than the monsters on TV. I love that song. That has stuck with me forever. But it's the same thing. We have to believe that God is bigger than whatever can come our way. Not that it's going to be easy. Not that it's not going to be difficult. Not that it's not going to stretch us and challenge us. But that God promises before it even happens that he's got you in his hands. In verse 12, it says this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt everyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. I know it's kind of a big chunk, but it, what I hear James saying is kind of along those lines that 
everything doesn't happen for a reason. Meaning that God doesn't make everything happen. When God chose to give us a choice and give us free will, he chose and he knew, I know he knew, some of the results that would come out of it. It would be crappy decisions by us. Situations we would put ourselves in. It would mean that we would be tempted to do evil. It would mean that people would choose to do evil. People would perish. So we can't look at situations in our life where someone chose to do evil and say that God did that for a reason. But what we have to believe is that there is still some meaning found in there. That when the world turns to crap, God still has an ultimate purpose. It says in Revelations that one day he will wipe every tear from our eyes, that everything will be made new. And as Christians, that's what we long for, right? We feel the brokenness in our world around us. We all do. We live in the world. But I think our response when we, when we realize um, God's role in all of that has to be one of trust. It has to be one that's built in knowing that he is always trying to grow us into the person that he can use. When I look at the story of Joseph, when I look at my life, at times in my life, where I was too immature to be used by God, and God very quickly shut that down and gave me an opportunity to grow. Joseph couldn't have been used. He was too immature. He was a brat. There's no way he could have done what God was calling him to do in that circumstance. And although God didn't make his brothers throw him in a well and sell him off to slavery, God did use that for good. God did use that to develop Joseph into a person that could save his family. So I want you to hear today, if nothing else, that God is large and God is in charge. And that when trials come your way, his purpose is not to leave you there. It's not to cause you pain. It's always a refining process. And that's the life of a Christian, isn't it? That's why we come to church. Because we want God to refine us, to show us who he is, to show us how to live like him, to how to be like him, how to love him more, how to love others more. So guys, this is not any easier for me. I get that. I know this is not an easy thing that James is saying, but consider it pure joy when God is taking the time to mold you into someone else, to mold you into a better version of yourself. Consider it pure joy because you know that God cares about you, that God loves you in the midst of those circumstances. I could go on and on about different stories in the Bible where God has proved this to me. And he brought all these stories up, and I don't have enough time to go through all of them. But God has shown us, if you read through the Old Testament, you have stories of Daniel who was thrown in a lion's den, a lion's den and God saved him from that. You have the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego who were thrown in a furnace, walked out unscathed. Paul, he was stoned uh, twice, I think, and walked away. Then he was shipwrecked in an ocean floated to shore, you know, these stories of these immense trials that God has used to teach people and to lead the church through them. And so my hope today, like I said a million times, is that you would know in your life that God is large and he's in charge. No matter when your plans fail, like mine did with all my sermon prep, <laughs> God's large, he's in charge. And so my hope today is that we would begin to believe that. Because James, as we'll, as we'll learn in the next few weeks, he's not about just hearing. He's not about just listening or just reading. 
he's very much about living it out. And I think that comes from his, his past. He said, for most of my life, I heard Jesus, I heard what he had to say, and I blew him off. So he's like, I believe wholeheartedly, I'm 100% in, I want everything that God has for me, and this is what faith looks like lived out. And so we'll continue walking through this um, over the next few weeks with me and then with others as well. But my prayer, my hope today, is that when we go through trials, we begin to see it in a different light. We would thank God for that opportunity. Not that it's easy, and we'll probably have to remind each other of that. But we can do that. That's why we meet. That's why we come together, because we're growing together. So would you guys pray with me as we end? God, we thank you for just your word. You know, when our technology fails, when everything else falls apart, God, we can always rest in the truth of who you are. We can always rest in the truth of the word that you've given to us, God. And so I pray that as we continue to walk through the book of James and hear from the brother of Jesus, about these things, God, that we would let it permeate our hearts, God. The roots of the Spirit would dig deep into our lives and so that as things come our way, we can meet them with joy. Because, God, we know you are large and you are in charge. You always want what's best for us, God, and that oftentimes means that we have to go through times of refinement. So, God, I pray that you would continue to build us into the type of people that you want us to be so that we can uh, do your will in the world around us, God. And we love you. We thank you for everything you are. In your name, amen.